Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest name is Tim Hall. Tim and I met through some business content writing that him and I are engaging with, and we got talking, and his story was so amazing that I could not help but try and get him on the show. He was an executive at Cartoon Network, worked at Hasbro for many, many years, heavy in the toy industry, and then as Intel was shutting down one of their electronic toy divisions, Tim jumped out an opportunity to buy the division of Intel. So after he bought the division of Intel, he grew that business to 85 million in revenue, 11 million in EBITDA, and had a 75 million valuation. The story takes a turn when Tim realized he missed his exit. The business climate changed, lots of things happened in the recession, and you have to listen on to hear all Tim's words of wisdom about things he wish he would have done differently, how he knows he could have capitalized on certain opportunities that he didn't see because he was so blinded by hitting that $100 million revenue mark. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Tim's transparency, honesty, and humbleness is something that I have not come across in a long time. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want to who you want for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. Good morning, Tim. How are you doing? Good morning, Ryan. How are you doing? Doing good. Excited to have you on the show today. You and I met through some of the ventures that you're doing today, and then we ended up having an awesome conversation about your past, which is now why you're here. So for our listeners, can you give us a little bit of a, a story, a backdrop on when you became an entrepreneur? Because you actually worked at some pretty big name uh, companies before you went off and ventured off on your own. Well, the story I didn't share with you actually goes way, way back to when I was 14, because uh, I and this other guy started an ice cream cart business, and we bought from the original Ben and Jerry's store in Burlington, Vermont. We bought wholesale and sold cones on the street. This is back in the late 70s. And um, I'm famous for having told Ben Cohen, the uh, co-owner of Ben and Jerry's, that the brand didn't matter. People just wanted ice cream, <laughs> <laughs> which is the first stupid thing I did in business because uh, we got into like a territory dispute. And I was like, well, I'll just go buy my ice cream somewhere else. <laughs> and uh, I should have stuck with that one. That would have been a very lucrative business over these decades. <laughs> That's awesome. So you, you started um, selling ice cream. and. It- then you you got in and you were working at Procter and Gamble and Hasbro and Cartoon Network. You know, how did you get into those industries? And then at what point did you decide to venture off and start your own business? Yeah, great question. I was uh, a corporate guy. I was comfortable in the corporate environment when I started out out of college. I was lucky enough to get into Procter and Gamble's um, marketing department without an MBA. They take a smattering of people from undergrad, and uh, it was really excellent training because it was sort of nuts and bolts marketing. And I worked there for about four years. And then uh, the Hasbro Toy Company uh, had a division at the time in the same town as Procter. And uh, a bunch of uh, former P&G people had gone to the toy company. And so I went from working on Folger's Coffee at Procter & Gamble to being in charge of toy dinosaurs for Jurassic Park movie. It was kind of a cool dynamic. I never thought in my wildest dreams I'd be working in the toy industry. But I was at Hasbro for about 10 years uh, working on all kinds of toys tied into movie products like uh, Jurassic Park. Or was that Batman. when Jurassic Park was like totally hit, uh, hitting mainstream too? Yeah, that was when the first movie came That's out. Awesome. And uh, I got to present the toy dinosaurs to and, and you know action figures to Steven Spielberg, which is really cool. <laughs> and I worked with George Lucas. I helped bring back the Star Wars toys in the 90s. They'd been gone for a while and uh, got to work with Lucas's people. It was a lot of fun in that industry. That's a, that's a blast. And so you went from there to Cartoon Network and you were there for like a, a little stint, right? That's right. Uh, I moved to Atlanta where I live now in 99 to, uh, to work with a Cartoon Network uh, at that time. 
it was in most uh, American households, but it was just starting to expand around the world. And so that was sort of my third corporate job. And then when I was there, one of my clients was um, the Intel Corporation. And Intel had been developing these cool gadgets for kids that were all tied into a computer. Because Intel, you know, their mission was to sell more silicon chips. So mm-hmm. they were trying to find ways to seed the marketplace. And they had developed this cool line of, of little gadgets, like a, a microscope where you saw all the images on your computer or one of the first video cameras that was designed for kids and they could see their video footage and make movies on their computer. So I was helping Intel uh, develop the marketing plans with our teams uh, at Cartoon Network to do, you know, television advertising and online advertising. And then in the middle of the planning, I heard from the people at Intel that their corporate management was just going to get out of that area. There were, this was 2001. It was right around 9-11. And, there, you know, there, there was that second kind of or that first bust of the mm-hmm. Internet 1.0 at that time, right? And so Intel was going to go focus on just their core business and get rid of this division. And I thought, this, this is a really cool opportunity because it was kind of a cool white space between toys and technology. And so I wound up uh, leaving the, the Cartoon Network, which was part of uh, Time Warner, and doing a deal with Intel to buy the business unit on my own. And that's how I really became an entrepreneur. You know, aside from that Ben and Jerry story, that was my first, you know, jumping in uh, feet first. That's fantastic. So were were they shutting it down? So did you just offer to buy it or was it like, how did that whole negotiation go? Like to get to a value of what they were going to shut down? It's interesting. It's kind of like swimming in the ocean. You got to just be confident in your ability to swim, not really knowing where the where the sides are. They had this division that had this kids business, and then they also had a consumer electronics business. Now, this goes way back to 2000. So this is before there was an iPod. Intel actually had was manufacturing and selling some early MP3 players, some early digital cameras, and then this kids division. So the whole thing, they said, well, you know, they had about maybe $100 million in annual sales of this stuff. Uh, and so I had to go. First, I had to hire a lawyer and pay out of pocket to kind of negotiate the deal. Then I had to hire an investment banking firm to to perform advisory and really to just kind of prove to Intel that I wasn't just, you know, messing around, that I was, you know, potentially a serious person who could raise capital to buy this division. Mm -hmm. But uh, we wound up getting it for very, very little money because once we did due diligence, we realized that there really wasn't a good value there. It certainly wasn't a hundred million dollar business because they 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 had kind of gotten out of that business and a lot of the inventory that they had shipped to retailers like Walmart or Best Buy was coming back and so in the end what I thought was probably a, a ten million dollar transaction that I had to go find outside money to buy we actually wound up uh, buying it for less than five hundred thousand no, um, dollars. kidding. <laughs> yeah, it was. Everybody else who was bidding on it just gave up, and I kind of won just on perseverance and just stuck with it. What's it like doing due diligence on Intel? It's impossible. <laughs> just <laughs> the thing about the suits walking around, just just stonewalling you, or what? No, the thing about the big companies like that is it's nothing for them to just shut down a big division. This is Intel. Mm-hmm. Cisco did this with another business. It, you know, for them, these are multi-billion-dollar companies, and so they're not really interested in, in selling off small businesses for you know a few million dollars. And and and, and you can understand that if you their standpoint, it's not really worth their time. Well, they could probably um, spend more money just dumping resources into it if they don't get in front of it. Yeah, or they're happy to just close and take a tax write-off, right? I yeah. mean, they're just yeah, – yeah. and I think the only reason they stuck with me was a lot of the guys who were on the other end of the table had kids, and they liked this business for their kids. It resonated with them. Hmm. And so uh, I think they just sort of did it uh, because they were good people, not because it was some big economic – value for Intel to get my $470,000 check one day. It was kind of a little bit of luck and a little bit of, uh, but perseverance was key because there's at least three times when I thought I should walk away from the deal, but I stuck with it. So, okay. After you do the deal, like how did you, like, where did you start? I mean, did they just dump a bunch of um, vendor relationships or, and I like, I mean, obviously you didn't like take their accounting package. Like, how did you like get it up and off the ground to keep going? Well, you raised the correct word, which is dumping. They just dumped <laughs> it. And, uh, 
So they, they were very nice, but it was kind of what we would call an as-is asset deal. They didn't make any representations that anything was working. And so uh, they had a number of employees who were really talented people who were, uh, had worked on the business. And within these big companies, they have internal, they can, they can tell somebody, okay, you no longer have a job, but you, you're not getting let go. You can apply for another job within our corporation for a while. And a lot of the big companies do this or used to do this. And so we had a number of talented people who were in limbo, not sure if they were going to get a new job at Intel. And I was able to persuade about a half dozen of them to, to stay with the company under the new name, join the new company. And that was a huge, huge help because I wasn't really starting from scratch. These people knew the, the products really well. And so we kind of got going from that standpoint. What but then, the cash flow, the, like in order, because you got six guys that I'm gals that I'm assuming make a pretty decent chunk of money. So, you know, what was the cash flow launching pad that you had in order to to take it to the next level? I mean, in order to keep yeah, these people on and everything. I think my story was like every entrepreneur. I took a second on my house. I actually had like a, <laughs> a, a third on my house, technically, right? I had this uh, additional loan that really didn't have any collateral behind it, but the banker took pity on me. I juiced out. I, you know, I'd done well because I'd worked in the corporate sphere for so long. So I had a pretty big savings account. I juiced that out. I traded in my kids' college funds because they were little kids at the time. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm sure I can replenish this before they go to college. So I, I just, you know, my wife was so patient with me at the time. I liquidated everything I could find, borrowed money from my brother, just went totally into hock to run it. Um, and we did pretty well in the first couple of years. We, we made some money and uh, it was a good bet. You know, it wasn't blind, but it mm -hmm. was, like I said before, it's kind of like swimming in the ocean. You just hope you get to the other side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a, I love that analogy. So what year was it that you started and you had some crazy growth from our, the conversations that we've had. So kind of just walk us through the, the, the first few years on, you know, what were the things that were going on? How were the, how did the operations work and what were, uh, where were you guys going? We started in 2002 and, um, the very first year we had this really interesting obstacle, uh, where, uh, we had brought all this inventory in, you know, it was stuff that Intel had made, but we repackaged it. We changed the colors and changed the brand name. It used to be Intel Play, and now it was called Digital Blue. And this was the fall of 2002. So we were prepped for a big Christmas season sale. And, and we got it into all the, the mass merchant customers you'd expect, like Toys R Us or uh, Best Buy and Circuit City back then. Were they already then. in there or did you have to go get in there? We had to go uh, account by account and, and sell it in. They had seen it before from Intel, and our head of sales at the time had been Intel's head of sales. So we had some continuity. Okay. We weren't coming in cold, but, uh, but we had to go. But we also had problems in the channel because Intel had shipped stuff in and taken it back. And so we kind of, the waters were a little bit poisoned. So we had to work hard to con convince people and, and, and sell it in. But, but the funny obstacle that happened, I can, I can laugh about it now, um, while you know, we'd done this delicate balance of converting the customers so that they would take it again, getting the factories going, uh, financing the goods so we could pay for them, you know, because we had a pair of factories in China before the goods would come over. In the middle of all that, the West Coast ports had a labor action, almost like a strike, except the ports locked out the workers. I, I, remember, <laughs> so, I, I actually remember that because we used to get all of our toner and uh, consumables from Japan and uh, all the the countries over there and literally couldn't get anything. People, it was like a, it was like a hand grab for anybody to just buy anything they possibly could in the States. Absolutely right. And so we were like, we were stuck. So half of our goods for Christmas of 2002 were sitting out on the water waiting to, to dock and they didn't dock <laughs> until November and we missed half the goods missed the season. But the funny part was we were, we, I had committed to television advertising on Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network. And that was kind of my old school thinking, you know, uh, I was thinking more like a public company person with an unlimited budget, not like an entrepreneur. So I'm like, yeah, we'll spend a couple million dollars advertising this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we couldn't pull the advertising. So in 2002, the advertising was running. Kids really wanted our products and the goods were on the water. And that was a disastrous 2002, but somehow we got through it and we created a sense of demand in the marketplace. So we did pretty well in three and four and five and so forth. So sometimes when you overcome your obstacles, 
you know, you, you get a little momentum after that. If it doesn't kill you, you you're a little bit stronger than you were before. We fine, fine tune and tighten up operations and which helps with the additional growth. Um, you and I were talking in a previous conversation about the different ways that you were financing and you and I both in our previous businesses were financing some of the operations. I believe you're with you having to pay for the goods prior to, you know, I mean, you're floating your, all your customers. I mean, so you're, they're using you as the bank. So how did you deal with the overseas manufacturers getting it into the, 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 the stores? I mean, what were some of the ways that you were financially structured to make it work? It's a great question. We were bootstrapped the whole way through for the first five years. So there was no outside money uh, coming in other than the occasional loan here and there. Um, and so I kind of developed a variety of different mechanisms to get the goods over. So the first thing I did was make uh, personal contact with each of the factories. And I flew over to China and met, you know, had dinner with the factory owners. So we got a little bit of trade credit out of uh, the factories, you know, kind of sold them the vision on how we were going to grow this business and how it was in their economic interest to trust us. And a lot of it just came down to uh, them starting to get comfortable and, and trust us. So we were able to get a little bit of credit from the factories. Then we, I, I did a typical uh, factoring agreement on the invoices with a uh, factor at the time, I think it was GE Capital, where once we sold to someone like uh, Best Buy or, or uh, Toys R Us, even though they didn't pay us for 60 days, the factor would advance you know, 85% of the money up front. And then the third thing we did was uh, I got a uh, small line of credit from a, a commercial bank here in Atlanta that uh, was very comfortable with the, um, with the import business, which is tough. Depending on where you live, if you're in the business of importing goods from overseas, it can scare a lot of banks. And certainly most banks in Atlanta are kind of frightened by the notion of international trade from Asia. But this particular bank had uh, ownership that were uh, first and second generation immigrants from China. And so they were comfortable with it. And so it was you know, it had a knock on the doors of maybe 20 banks mm -hmm. and get turned down before one uh, did that. So we had this kind of combination of these different structures. There was no one size fits all solution. And there certainly was no idea of, oh, I'm going to go out and find, you know, a venture capital fund that's going to, you know, give me all the startup money I need. I think sometimes we get an impression that we can go to one source and, and do this wonderful capital raise, just like many tech companies do. But particularly when you're not in tech, that can be a very tricky thing to do. Well, yeah, I think there's this misperception that's kind of going on with the, that's what gets all the PR with all these funds and the VCs and these businesses and the apps and software out of the, the West Coast that just get all this money. And then they just go like, you know, make a billion dollar business where the, the main street mid market has to. Like, I mean, financing and getting the money is one of the biggest challenges that can either make or break it. And I think that's where you and I have had a lot of the uh, <laughs> the overlap. Uh, the you know, when you talk about the factoring and like, so you've got multiple ways because your, your whole goal is to get the money to buy the goods and then make sure that your customers pay you. Can, can we dive a little bit more into that factoring? Because I think, you know, depending on where the entrepreneurs are that listen to this, you know, they might have a normal line of credit where they got a million bucks that they can just, you know, deplete and then pay back as, uh, as they get paid from their customers. But this whole factoring, you know, you got a combination of lines of credit. But then you also have this factoring. Can you can you elaborate a little bit more on exactly how that works? Sure. Yeah. So so factoring itself, uh, there's two kinds of it. There's recourse and non-recourse. And uh, recourse means that um, the bank uh, you know tries to collect on your receivables, and if they if they fail, they can put them back to you. Non-recourse means if they fail to collect any receivables, it's their problem. So the, the way it works is you would present your invoices. So let's say I sold something to uh, Target stores for $100,000. I would present that invoice, and Target's not going to pay me for 60 days. I'd present that invoice to a factor, and the factor would say, okay, I'm going to advance you 85% of this invoice. So it was a $100,000 invoice. I'll give you 85 grand on day one, and then Target's going to pay me, the factor, directly, and then I'll give you what, what's left over minus my fees. Um, and so it sounds great on paper, right? Like I'm going to get 85% of my money up front. And then in 60 days, I'll get the rest of my money, less their fees. <laughs> Which the fees are super cheap, right? <laughs> <laughs> the fees are generally going to be in the low 20%. Yep. Um, and the advances are not necessarily going to be 85%. It's almost always up to the discretion of the factor of how much they actually advance based on, you know, once this thing gets going and they have 
you know, some invoices don't get paid on time and so they can set up reserves. And so what you wind up doing is paying a lot of money for a very small amount of liquidity uh, relative to your receivables. You just, you know, depending on the factory you're using, there's some that are really good and very transparent. And there's others I've worked with that are not so transparent. And it's, it's like you're spending all your time arguing with your <laughs> lender what you're borrowing. Basically, I think that resonates with you, uh, doesn't it, Ryan? Our bank, our bank brought on a factoring division. So a normal bank does deposits and they do lines of credit and they give you like mortgages. This bank brought on a division like that. It was a different software. They had zero idea what was going on ever. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a different animal. And it's risky from their standpoint, though. You have to stand in their shoes, too. They take on a lot of risk because if you could qualify for a normal bank loan, right, you, you've got great cash flow, you've got equity, you've got, you know, savings account in the bank, then you wouldn't need factoring. So mm -hmm. factors are generally working with companies that, from their standpoint, are more risky, not quite ready for primetime commercial credit. And so, they're, therefore, they're very cautious with it. But it can really cause you some gray hair as well, you go through those relationships. With with the factoring too, it's it's risky in multiple different fashions of the word risk, right? Because you were had a viable business and you were trying. I mean, you you needed the factoring, you needed the money up front to run operations and also to get the goods. And actually, Phil Knight in his book Shoe Dog talks about a lot of this, and it's a fantastic yeah. book. I like. I had just like the sh the shivers while I was listening to that book, but. You know the the factoring like with a with a growing company like yours or like we were exponential growth. You can't go get just a normal line because they have no trend to base off your line of operations. So you just have no idea because your growth is the animal, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean a normal uh, products company like I had, it, it's different for a service company, but for a products company, a more normal line of commercial credit, they're not going to really be comfortable extending to you till you have at least a million dollars of net profit a year or EBITDA per year. And so, you know, there's a lot of companies that have great growth stories and the growth requires so much capital that it makes them risky. And, and, and that's something that I became more aware of. You know, I was booking these great top line numbers year after year and my lenders weren't getting all warm and fuzzy. And I realized there's this risk of growth that doesn't bring profits with it as fast as the growth, you know, the trap of, of profitless growth can be very dangerous for a company. You know, you, you, as a products company, the riskiest point is after you pass maybe 10 million in annual revenue, that's when it's very easy to fall apart, uh, as I very well proved a few years later. And um, therefore, the banks tend to be very, very conservative with these factory lines. So, okay, as you know, just to put a, to bow, a bow on that conversation, because the, the factoring is, you know, it's, you're making ends meet for your the whole goal is you actually I think in one of your emails talked about the next rung of the ladder. The whole goal is to get to that million in EBITDA so you can get to the conventional banking situation. So you're 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 just trying to get there. And in that hundred thousand dollar example, you know, with all those fees and all that time, I mean, you have to have some serious profits in order to even make that work because they're skimming everything off the top. So how did you you know where was your insight? Did you have certain benchmarks in, uh, in EBITDA or revenue or distribution? What were your KPIs that you were trying to march towards to get to that around the corner, if you want to call it that? Yeah, great point. So I actually sat down with a banker, an asset-based lender who would do a normal kind of commercial loan for a product company early, maybe in 2002. And, and he's like, you don't really qualify for what we're doing. Here's some factors you should go talk to. Well, I pursued this guy and I eventually talked him into meeting me for breakfast. And I said, what would I have to look like to qualify for, for an asset based line of credit, you know, a normal credit line with, you know, a six or 7% interest rate. And so he kind of spelled it out and it was the sort of million dollars of annual EBITDA, a couple of years of, of runway where, you know, the company was well managed. We didn't run out of cash any particular month recurring customers that um, came back and bought over and over and no risk, no concentration in just one customer. You know, they, they were afraid if, well, what if all your business was with Walmart and then one year Walmart doesn't buy you? So I pursued this guy and made him, him kind of give me the vision of what it would take to get commercial credit. And that was, our KPIs were all around that. Uh, you know, the million dollars of EBITDA, the um, lack of concentration, not having any one customer account for more than 20% of our sales, 
collecting our receivables on a relatively timely basis. I, I don't think we're ever great at that. And then uh, keeping operating expenses at a you know certain uh, benchmark of sales. I forget what it was. But uh, the point for your listeners is if you if you figure out from the banker's point of view, or and this could be any kind of lender, but if you figure out where you're trying to get to early, you can build your plans around that and 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 move and use factoring just as that stair step to get to that better level. Well, and you know, you ha- it's very it's so I love the parallels of our stories because the banker was driving our situation too. And the banker in anybody's situation, because you're on the factoring and so are we, we had to get to that. Our goal is to get to the healthy, you know, less stressful situation. But the, all of those things that you just mentioned are the same thing that any buyer is going to look at when they're valuing your company. So whether it's a banker just trying to give you a line of credit or a buyer, I mean, everything kind of just ties to value and sustainability. Yeah, it's very, yeah, you're exactly right. It's about overall value and transferable value and sustainability. I totally agree. A lot of us entrepreneurs, when we start out, we're just thinking about dollars that, you know, we're trying to get to a top line dollar and then probably a gross margin dollar to run our business. And and that's very, you know, laudable because it's really hard to sell stuff and collect and, and that piece <laughs> of the business. Yeah. But you somehow have to, you know, you got to kind of open your perspective a little bit to look at these other characteristics because that's how buyers or lenders are going to are going to value you. So where did you know, so you talk to this asset based lender, you're driving towards these KPIs. Where did things start to, I mean, were the wheels rumbling? You you raised some money. You also brought on some other partners. So it kind of elaborate on the story and how things continued to progress. Yeah, well, we were growing nicely. And uh, I was, uh, I'd gone through almost every year. It was, I took the time to kind of re-pitch our um, factoring line and then try and, you know, improve this line of credit or that line of credit. So it was a lot of work on dealing with the banks and the factors. But I remember getting to a point around 2006 where we were about to close a pretty big asset-based loan, and it fell apart in the in the closing documents for some reason. I don't even remember what fell apart, but we thought we were going to close. And for us, summertime was important to get all this done because we had to get the goods going because we were very heavily a fourth quarter business. And I remember this deal falling apart at the last minute. And my uh, attorney, uh, who was helping me with the closing documents, was kind of giving me a hard time. And he's like, I don't know why you're working with this particular bank. If you just come to me earlier, I would have introduced you to this private equity fund that I work with. And I was like, yeah, I was too cheap to hire you earlier, attorney. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I didn't pay for good and valuable counsel. Well, the lender left us, quit the deal. And I, I think there was a, I think we were raising mezzanine funds. So we were profitable. We were a good looking company, probably doing about 20 million revenue at this point. And I think we had a mezzanine deal that was coming in on top of a senior line of credit. Like, so we had these different lenders bringing different kinds of credit capital. And I remember the mezzanine guy backed out. And so the senior couldn't close without the mezzanine. And this it. whole deal fell apart at the closing statements. But it was fortuitous because my uh, my attorney introduced me to this um, fund, kind of a <clears throat> family fund, and they um, did a loan to our company uh, that covered what we needed. It was less than you know we were going to do a like a revolver of maybe twenty million with this bank, uh, but we wound up getting about eight million. But it was a term loan, so it's like you know unlike factoring or asset based loans, it was just a chunk of money, mm-hmm. and we used that to fuel growth. And so we went from 20 uh, and then within a year we were doing about 80 million in revenue because Holy we had this buckets. big chunk of capital and everything was going well. This was, you know, pre-recession. And so we had this enormous growth curve. Um, and so then we brought in some more capital. Money when you got it, because to go from 20 to 80 million, what was, I mean, obviously you probably had an order of operations and stuff that you wanted to deploy that money to. What were, what were some of the top priorities? We were uh, all about expanding our product line. So we had pretty good uh, distribution at the big merchants like uh, uh, Walmart and Target and Toys R Us and people like that for our products. And so we used it to develop new products and bring them to market. And uh, we had a deal with Disney Company at this point, and that fueled a lot of the growth uh, as a partnership. Uh, We would license Disney's brands and put them on a little electronic gadgets like we had 
uh, these are back when these things called digital cameras that people had for their phones. <laughs> <laughs> so we made digital cameras based on Disney characters and we made these MP3 players based on Disney characters and stuff like that. And, you know, so we were able to go from having maybe a dozen products to 50 or 60 products going from having maybe a foot of shelf space to four feet of shelf space. And all of a sudden the business just took off. Uh, we actually expanded internationally and it was a really, really good run. So this, so you, you, I think I caught that this PE firm was actually a family fund. Um, so was it a, was it a wealthy family that had their own kind of private equity or holding company? Basically. Yeah, it was a family. And then, and then they had limited partners in the fund. And I can't say the name of yep. them, of course, because of confidentiality. But so they had a family was the core, and then they had a hundred uh, limited partners in the uh, area, and they had kind of a unique model, uh, so they could do both debt and equity. Okay, it's uh, that was kind of where I was going with this because I actually interviewed a gentleman who was in the family office industry. So um, we talked about some how the family offices work, and it's just interesting that they just gave you a term loan because most of the time they're going for you know the traditional PE firm wants equity, and most uh, times it's the controlling share. So just to get a, a term loan is just interesting. So how did they, I mean, what was, was it, was there any stipulations with the, with the chunk of money or, I mean, kind of explain how that worked? Well, because we were in uh, closing documents with the big lender and it was somebody like, you know, a major U S bank. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they got comfort that we had passed all the diligence with the big lender got it. and our, our attorney was their attorney. And so they had a lot of comfort, even though they never met me, they had a lot of comfort that yeah, this yeah. was a good, was a good deal. Um, and they stuck with us through thick or thin over the next, you know, five, six years. Well, okay. So what was the partnership like? And then you said the five or six next years, the recession's coming and you're in manufacturing and in toys. And so where did this journey take you after you started to grow like that? Well, um, you know, I, I, I missed my exit. When I started the company, I thought I would do it for five to seven years and then sell it to, you know, a, a larger public toy company or um, maybe a VC fund or something like that. It wasn't like my lifelong dream to keep running this particular company. And so uh, by 2008, we were doing uh, well over 80 million in revenue. We were very profitable. We were bringing about $10 million to the bottom line. Wow. And that was a point where I should have, you know, my, my equity piece was still, you know, the largest equity piece in the company. I'd sold some off to the uh, fund I mentioned uh, mm -hmm. in the form of warrants or whatever. But that's when I should have been like um, entertaining bids or pitching the company or something like that. But I was so focused on trying to get to a number, which was 100 million revenue. For some reason, that number resonated with me, which was foolish, uh, that I didn't really fully consider what was going on between the recession and the obsolescence of things like digital cameras and MP3 players due to this uh, little iPhone thing that had just come out. And so I, I didn't really look at all of these things. You know, we knew a recession was coming 2007, 2008. Uh, prior recessions had not really impacted the toy industry. I think I had lived through two uh, at Hasbro. And what we would find is when a recession comes, consumers would pull back on, you know, buying houses, buying cars, you know, would not go buy a new refrigerator, but they still kind of indulged their kids. Mm -hmm. But that was not the case with the recession of 08 and kind of hit 09 pretty hard, too. They really pull back on all kinds of consumer shopping. And so our sales um, were, were suffering. But what really hurt us was when our, our customers went out of business. So, you know, Circuit City went out of business, FAO Shores, I think it was before the recession. And then a couple of our distributors in, in Europe and UK went out of business. And so all of a sudden you had these big black spots where you thought somebody was going to pay you a million dollars and you might collect, you know, 200,000 margin on that. <laughs> you get zero. And, uh, you know, we had these big, big holes happening at the same time that our products were becoming less important to consumers. Wow. So were you stuck with like, when they're filing chapter uh, seven or 11, these different companies, you know, did, were you impacted with your cash flow as well in that situation? Because usually, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that can happen in that situation. Yeah, it certainly hurt us. So uh, some of the American companies we had credit insurance on. And okay. so if they went out of business, the credit insurance would pay a piece of it. 
And then the international ones uh, really hurt because we couldn't get credit insurance on them to begin with. And uh, we got kind of surprised on a couple of those. And, you know, I think a more experienced manager uh, in my seat would have said, I'm going to pull back on credit to these guys in 2007 or 2008. These were companies that we've been working with for four or five years. We'd grown up together. We had a lot of trust at the top. Mm-hmm. And that does you that does you no good, Ryan, if they go out, you know, because especially in Europe, it happens very suddenly, and uh, you just you just hosed. That's 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 a big deal, and I, I think there's a lot of people in the retail space that are kind of probably in similar or different similar situations as that. I want to go back a couple points because you you. I mean, at 80 million in revenue and 10 million or 11 million in EBITDA that you had mentioned, and you had sold some equity to the fund. So you had obviously had some talks about valuation. So how, you know, what was the, you know, you said you missed your exit. So what was the number that you saw that technically wasn't good enough? And then how did it all kind of unfold? Yeah, great question. So uh, I had my mindset on just getting to 100 million revenue and I thought we could do even better. And a lot of that was coming from our customers. Um, I remember in 2007 uh, being beaten up. I went to uh, Target stores. I remember the divisional merchandising manager at Target was giving me a hard time because we weren't in stock enough. And, um, you know, trying to keep up with all the demand was tough. And so I was listening to my customers and they were saying more and more growth. And I was listening to my own sense of greed and I was saying more and more growth. But what I should have been saying was, all right, what, what really are the conditions of the market? What's my piece worth right now? And if I took the time to sell this company, which, which isn't easy because nobody was asking to buy it, you know, I would have had to you mm-hmm. know, figure out how to put it up for sale. But if I had sat there and done the math, I would have been like, okay, the amount of equity I would take out of this company would, would be a generational life-changing event, not just for me, but for you know, think of all my descendants who could be totally messed up because they grew up with money, <laughs> <laughs> which I did not. Right. So, so you uh, saved them from from all that horrible I stuff. Think of all the great grandchildren that I could turn into <laughs> just <laughs> anyways. Um, you know, when you're running a company, you don't really take the time to sit back and think about these things because you're so busy with your priorities for that day and that week. And we would do strategic planning, but it was all about our business model. And I think that every entrepreneur needs to have some kind of group of people, a kitchen cabinet, if you will, who, who stops her or him and says, hey, what are you, where are you really trying to get to? What is your personal goal here? And does that intersect or split off from the company's goals? And my goals were too focused on the company's goals. And so I, so I missed the exit. Yeah, it's it's so funny. I hear that so much. And ours was too. Ours were all revenue based. Or I mean, I hear people like it's revenue based, going international, going national, opening up no new locations, and and no sight on what does this mean for me. And you know, you and I yeah. before the before we jumped on the call, we we're talking about all the concentration that people have in their houses for their assets, but. The business is 95% of the uh, owner's net worth at most most cases. So to double down in, in a specific industry that might have risk and not think about that is, is, is a huge deal. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, as entrepreneurs, we have to build in time to go think about it. You know, And a lot of times people don't ever think about their exit until somebody comes and offers to buy their company. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they're playing catch up on tax matters on you know, getting their audits done. Was this the best price I could get for it? Should I have sold this thing? So a lot of guys will sell their companies, uh, men and women will sell their companies. Then, and then after the fact, they're like, geez, I paid way more in taxes or I paid all the state and local income tax. And you've read, see, too, I many mean, my, you've read too many of my blogs. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. You have to be thinking about your exits you know, a year or more ahead, especially for any kind of... Um, you know, estate planning or anything like that. So there's a whole industry of people out there who'll help you do that for large fees. But you know, you can just kind of read. You know, you can go read your blogs and 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 just take the time to go do this and talk with some people who don't have a dog in the hunt. Right, you know, right. and yep. and uh, could give you some advice. So how did you? Okay, as things started, as you started seeing the wheels fall off. I mean, what were you emotionally feeling as you're as you're going through that? 
<laughs> I like talking about up to the recession, Ryan. I don't like talking about as much after the recession. It was a really tough time uh, because so much of my ego was built into the company. The hardest part is letting people go. And you talk to anybody who's uh, been in either a public or private company and had to do layoffs. It's horrible. And I literally laid off you know, 110 people. And it was the worst experience of my life. And I had done that before for uh, private companies. You know, I, I remember once in the 90s, my corporation bought a division and then I had to go let go several dozen people. And it's even worse when it's your own company because it's like your family. So mm-hmm. literally going to my people I'd worked, you know, shoulder to shoulder with for a decade and, and telling them I can't make payroll and I got to let you go and there's no future. Uh, and owing people money, you know, it was hard to, you know, cover people's expense reports and everything at the end. And so that was just a horrible experience for me going through that. And it, and it took a couple of years, you know, we didn't think we were out at first. And so, you know, we would do, I think the first year in 2009, we might've laid off about a third of the company thinking we were cauterizing the, the bleeding and stabilizing the company. But, you know, we were in so much debt at that point that we just kept putting all our money to debt payments and, and the growth wasn't there that we were hoping or the revenue wasn't able to be stabilized that we were hoping. And so a year later, I had to lay off more people up to the point where I think by 2014, my last uh, two people uh, had to go. And uh, that was pretty much the end of, of that company, Digital Blue. Isn't it? I mean, I I can relate so much and I, I can't, the, the stomach ache that I feel right now for you as you're going through that. I mean, is there anything you know, that you would have done differently knowing exactly kind of where the trending, trending was going? Would you have tried to sell it? I mean, because the, the reason I'm asking that question is because being in your in the corner office like you were, and it becomes more about, like you said, the pride and the ego of keeping this going than it is about anything money related at that point. Would you have separated the emotion from the situation and done something differently now that you know what you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so it's like I paid millions of dollars in tuition, basically. And, and now I have the degree from the School of Hard Knocks. And so I know better, right? So the, the first one is not to miss your exit while times are good. And, you know, that's there's plenty of books written on that, too. But basically, when you're in an up economic cycle like we were, you know, we could kind of see the peak of that economic cycle in 2007, 2008. You didn't have to be an economist to know that bad stuff was happening. So that's a good time to to sell the company. So just knowing your, your cycle is important. Um, and then, you know, knowing what would be uh, your goals and what would be the right number for you is important. And so I could have easily gotten out in seven or six and, and been very happy with my uh, economic conditions after that. So so those those are easily covered. I think the, the second set of learning is, isn't just about don't miss your exit, but when times are bad and you're you know, captain of the ship and times are bad, you have to be, I learned that you have to be more brutal and um, tough with expenses than you can possibly imagine. And, you know, throughout my whole career, I'd always been on growing businesses or I found a way to make businesses grow, whether it was the public or private companies. I'd never been in retrenched mode where you just need to be an extremely tough bean counter. Um, I was resistant to putting the company into bankruptcy protection in part because I didn't want to screw over the guys in um, who had supported us from the uh, family fund because they would you know they had equity in at this point and they had been out mm-hmm. and uh, I think uh, in in hindsight I probably would have taken advantage of a chapter eleven to restructure some of the debt mm-hmm. uh, because you know we were talking about that factoring after the recession we were stuck in that um, uh, inkwell of factoring and it just it was just a money losing proposition so. You know, I would have been more careful when things were good, and I would have been more tough when things were bad. Yeah, the uh, that the chapter restructuring in bankruptcy is something that is so. It's like this horrible wall, and it's between you and your ego. <laughs> Even uh-huh. like when you throw it on the paper, it's like, who gives a shit what this is called? This is like the best idea ever, <laughs> and like <laughs> and people just don't. I mean, there's there's just so much emotional tie, emotion tied into that because I. I mean, there's so many people that I know, actually one of our old executives that came onto our team, he went through this, this is a little side story, but he went through 
um, his own kind of unwinding like this. And he had about 25 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. He was a union shop because they made tools for uh, like, if the, you know, third party tools for some of the big hardware stores. And, you know, he's in a lot of big box and recession happened and they eliminated all of his stuff. And he could have restructured same situation and and he wound it down and kept the corporation alive. And then the union came back and sued him for unpaid dues, which it's like, dude, there was no money there. <laughs> so oh, still, oh, that's hard. Yeah, it's just a bummer. I mean, so yeah, it's a, you know, there's a whole thing there about, you know, what are the options when you're actually in the tough times that you don't really know about because all you're trying to do is fend off the next punch. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can be living day to day. And, you know, we would roll out our cash flow for 10 weeks at a time to see if we could pay bills and stuff. And when you're in that kind of um, crisis mode, it's hard to step back and look at uh, different options. And the people that will help you step back and look at different options usually want retainers. And so it can be a really tough uh, time, you know, better not to get into those tough scrapes. Mm -hmm. But if you are, you have to be, you know, all the more diligent with what, what you decide to do. So if you were to go back and sit down with yourself when you're doing 80 million and 10 million in EBITDA, what are the two things you would have said to yourself? Uh, I would have said, hey, let's go sell this company um, and let's take selling the company as seriously as we take selling next year's product line. So when we would go sell next year's product line, we'd go to Las Vegas to a trade show. and We would rent a bunch of suites at the Bellagio and we would bring in presenters and make cool sizzle videos and we would really sell the product line and get everybody to buy the dream. Uh, selling a company can be that too. You know, you don't have to hire an investment banker to position yourself in the best light. But, you know, in, in hindsight, I would have gone out to LA where a lot of the uh, public toy companies have headquarters and set up a little showroom like that and brought in some models and, and tried to really just sell the magic. And uh, that's probably the best advice I would have given myself back in the good times was to take the sale as seriously as I took the business. I think that's super, super good advice. I, I mean, it, and it doesn't have to happen overnight either. And it, I don't know if your experiences from from what you went through is people have this in, uh, this assumption that you just have to sell immediately, but there, it just takes a process and it takes a long time. So to to actually spend the time doing it, like you said, I mean, use the sizzle just like you're selling the next product line. I like it. <laughs> a lot of entrepreneurs can do that if they focus on all of their external facing um, channels. Like a website's a great example. Let's say you have a service company and you know you want to sell it a couple years down the road and you have a cookie cutter website that you built, you know, from the tools from register, or you, you hired your neighbor's kid to build it. Um, you know, you might want to think about investing to have a really sharp looking up-to-date website because that's your calling card. When, when people are thinking about buying you, what's the first thing they do? They Google you and they Google your company and they go look at your site. So that's like one tactic that companies could follow to just kind of spruce up what they're presenting out to the world, make sure it's as up-to-date as possible. And of course, that's good for business too. Yep. Yep. I love it. So Tim, as uh, we're wrapping up here, what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? You know, I can be reached by email um, at my new company, which is called Symporter, S-I-M-P-O-R-T-E-R. So I'm Tim at Symporter.com. And it's funny because Symporter was, uh, I just started up uh, to address some of the problems that I had with the old company because it was hard for us to get credit, right? It was hard for us to finance back to the China factories. And it was hard to know if the inventory that we were selling was going to maintain its value or if you know prices were going to decline and stuff. And so I created Symporter to help companies with that curve. And so it lets you, uh, it lets a company that's in the products business or a lender to companies that are in the products business keep track of the value of their collateral, whether it's the inventory that they're selling to Walmart or Amazon or something like that. And it's also a way for them to uh, access credit markets where they might be able to get better credit than the typical factoring stuff that you and I slogged through. So <laughs> that's, isn't that's, that, is it, how rewarding is it being able to help people go up? It's amazing. Went through. <laughs> it's amazing. I, I work with a lot of very young companies with entrepreneurs in their thirties and I, and I tell them the horror stories and show them, you know, Hey, learn from my mistakes, but here's, here's a, you know, better outcomes for you. 
And it's a lot of fun to be able to share those cautionary tales in a, in a constructive way, not just lamenting over it. Yeah. How much would you have paid for just a little bit of advice when you're <laughs> <to find? laughs> I, I, you know, it's one thing to get the advice. It's another thing to actually listen to it and follow it. So. <laughs> That's true. hundred million, hundred million, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Tim. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you very much. So I'm going to do a couple of things a little bit differently today because I want to give my key takeaways on some episodes. And I thought I would try it with Tim's because Tim's story hit my heart so hard. And the top three takeaways that I had from Tim's story and the information that he shared with us, one is that the next rung on the ladder is not always revenue or size-based. I mean, he wanted to hit that dollar amount so bad that he was a, he was blinded from what was going on around him. And I think as business owners, we all get to the point where we've got some sort of benchmark, whether it's going national, a certain revenue amount, some client that you want to capture to benchmark and compare yourself to so you know how you're succeeding, that realizing a what's it all about becomes a little bit vague and understanding the business is supposed to be a part of your life and not you being a slave to whatever it is that you're going towards. And Tim, unfortunately, had a tragic event that forced him to realize that. And I think really taking a self-reflection of what is it that's important to me and what are my actual goals instead of having it just 100% being tied into the business, which kind of takes me to the second takeaway. The second takeaway, and Tim nailed it perfectly when he said all of his goals and strategic planning were only for the business. He never sat back and said, okay, what's important to my life? How do I find happiness? Where does the business fit into it? And when is enough? And to be able to focus on your strategic planning in your life as much as your business, I think, what did he say? The quote was that if you would have focused on his exit plan, and his life plan as much as he would have putting in the effort to launch that next new product line at one of his conferences, he would have been a happy and successful individual. And then the third takeaway is don't don't miss your exit when the timing's good. I think everybody gets so high on the, the, the cash flow and the good times that realizing the best time to sell could potentially be when it's the best time in your business. So you, you, know, you need to know your numbers, and you need to know the business cycle and be aware that your timing could change and what is the risk every single day that you continue on. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope you enjoyed the takeaways and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.